Willow in the Windies, the Caribbean cricket podcast with me, David Oram. I'll be looking at the recent major cricket news stories in the region, but not this week in the company of my good friend Reds Pereira, who quite understandably, after the recent passing of his great friend Tony Cozier, is taking a little time off to prepare for the funeral and, well, a lot going on in that part of the world at the moment. Instead, I'm joined by another one of my old pals from Barbados, uh, Dr Andrew Ford. Greetings, Andrew. How are you? Yes, I'm, I'm fine, David. Uh, good to hear from you. And I guess from the outset, we should say condolences to Tony Cozier's family and all the West Indians who, who really loved him and, and cared about the work that he did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I do want to give you, Andrew, uh, perhaps we'll do it you know, later in the show, uh, your opportunity to have your own reflection for, of Tony. I did a programme with Reds the other day in which he remembered uh, his great friend and uh, we've had a lot of very, very kind feedback from listeners about it. Andrew, you like me when I was in Barbados, regular panellist on the Mason and Guest Show. In fact, you, you're basically a fixture these days on the show and it was only a couple of weeks ago that um, you were one of the panellists that couldn't get a word in edgeways, while Condi Riley and uh, Gregory Nichols were uh, quite animated in talking about the um, CARICOM dispute. Ironically, it was that show that was the subject of the penultimate article written by Tony Cozier. In the last week or so, the, the legends have responded to the things that um, Condi Riley said in that, that edition of Mason and Guests. Two questions, really, Andrew. One... What did you think of Condi's uh, comments at the time, and, and what do you think about the, the legend's response? Well, it was intriguing to to be in the studio and and listen and watch, you know, such passionate West Indian fans from different sides of the divide discuss uh, their feelings about what's happening with the board and and how West Indies cricket uh, can go forward. Basically, I think that we all know that the West Indies have been struggling of late and. There are many things that need to be fixed with with our cricket, including the structure and the administration and the facilities and and certainly the economics. But uh, I believe that the the icons are are men who are very honourable men, and they they are entitled to their opinion just as as anyone else is. The thing is that the way the the meeting was constructed with the Honourable Prime Minister, with Derek Murray, with Dinanath Ramnarayan, and with the captain of the recent T20 team, I think the conclusions were were pretty obvious that they would come down the side of the board really needing to be revitalised or, or just tossed out. But I think that even if we did that, that our cricket would still be in the same situation uh, a minute after it's done and a new structure would take a great deal of time to get the learning curve that's required to to take care of our cricket and I think one of the failings of the board was really not being able to do enough fixtures and get us enough games so that we could be relevant in the T20 and the 
and the 50 overs, especially since we're missing the Champions Trophy. But I can understand the the the, the way that Conde felt. He he felt that since the the icons went with the with a group that had those components that would come up with that mm. uh, situation that maybe they were used. But I think the, the icons feel the same way. I also understand that Conde being closely linked with the board and seeing that their, their efforts to make sure that there's an equitable distribution of wealth as far as the economics of the board is concerned and, and being able to professionalize all arms of cricket, including the women's cricket, that they've done a great deal and I, I would say that they have uh, really done a lot since they've been in but all boards around the world have got smaller and you know I think the West Indies Cricket Board needs to do that from its directorship uh, they both have a point and I think they were quite heated in putting those points across but, mm. I, but I believe that Condé's suggestion just kind of took took the, the will and the, the free thought out of what the, the icons and the legends did. So I, I knew they had to respond, and that they did. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I remember at the time the uh, Barito report came out, you and I did a special podcast where, uh, where we looked quite closely at the, uh, at the document, and both of us were very disappointed with its contents. But I think both of us, and I know Reds would agree with this, uh, are in favour of reform, but we're not in favour of the completely, oh, it must be completely disbanded immediately. That's just a, a bit much. And I can understand where Condi was coming from in feeling passionate at the response, and I can understand that the, the legends passionately want to um, respond to that situation. Reds himself, this week, uh, in in his response to Tony Cozier's death, he said this is a moment that should be used... He called for unity and uh, and compromise and a way forward. Yes, certainly the yes the way that the things have gone so far, you know, we, we must come together to find the best solution. Yeah, no, I think we're agreed on that. We'll wait and see what happens next. Um, possibly the biggest cricket news of the week for the uh, the West Indies was the uh, I don't know if it's sacking, dismissal, or he's moved on, but the replacement of Kirtley Ambrose as West Indies bowling coach uh, by Roddy Eswick. Um, well, I was not sure if this is a case of did he fall or was he pushed. Um, what's your? T- I I was I wondered, Andrew. I mean, I want your take on this, obviously. But I did remember back the comments of Franklin Stevenson early this year, um, when he was very disparaging about Kirtley Ambrose's uh, coaching qualities as as a bowling coach, and they were well publicised. Do you think that would have had any bearing? Well, I'm I'm not really sure. I mean, Kirtley Ambrose has been a consultant, and that's the. Uh... A kind of a title that we don't often uh, use in world cricket now, but the West Indies have used it in the past. But it did suggest that it would be a, a temporary one, as he, he wasn't actually made a coach. Uh, Roddy Eswick has a, a long history of being involved uh, as a schoolmaster, uh, cricket coach, and also he's worked with the under-19s at all levels, including the West Indies level. He's worked with the with also the developmental West Indian uh, youth teams. And he has his finger on the pulse of young, talented, fast bowlers, especially within the region. And I think his becoming the coach is just in keeping with the selection panel's idea about 
revitalizing our bowling attack with some youthful assistance. And he certainly knows all of the young, talented bowlers in our region. And he'll be well placed to, to manage them and to guide them along and to make sure that, that our bowling becomes that youth, youth base that we want. So uh, I think it's a, a very good selection. Yeah, yeah. We wish him well. We wish him well in uh, in that role. Um, do you think the uh, the selection will be revitalised? If I can pick up that word you used there, uh, with the uh, announcement of the ODI side for the Tri Series, or do you expect to see the the return of the twenty twenty players, Pollard, Dwayne Bravo, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? I think it will be a mixture of the two. I believe that we will see some of the uh, individuals that would have made up the last. Uh, 50 over team of course uh, the captain but you mentioned uh, the T20 players I think only Narain or maybe Pollard would be involved but I guess Alzari Joseph would be someone who will uh, feature in that in that mix but and maybe Craig Braffitt may come in for his first 50 over uh, tour but I believe that we'll see a mixture of the two but as far as the on the 19s are concerned, I think only Joseph is really ready at the moment. But, you know, there was Shamar Springer and also this Kimo, Kimo Paul because I'm yeah. not sure that Gail will be, will be fit. And, but as far as that's concerned, I think it will be a mixture of the two. Did you uh, then perhaps not agree with Brian Lara's recent comments when he called for the recall of uh, Pollard, Dwayne Bravo, etc., uh, uh, saying that they, they would feature in any West Indies side? Um, personally, I'm not sure they would even merit uh, a place, but um, others would disagree with me. Well, I, I think Pollard is young. He has a lot of captaincy experience and uh, he has some use to us. And uh, so I, I can agree with that. As far as Bravo is concerned, uh, I believe his his ability is waning. Even at the IPL level, he is in and out of his team. His batting has gone completely. Mm. And he is a bowler who experiments a lot. And that's okay for T20, but for 50 overs, it's hard really for, for us to use him in that way. I only see Narain as and Pollard as being... You know, possibilities, I think, in our youth push that Gale, especially now that he hasn't gotten past 10 since the, the World T20 uh, tournament, it'll be hard to see him really making it into this side. So uh, I do understand what, what Brian is saying, but, you know, all these players form the nucleus of all of our limited overs sides and, and we haven't done that well in 50 over cricket uh, and but a big part of that problem is us not being able to execute on the field but another part is the failing of the the board as far as fixtures were mm. concerned to give us enough chances to play the 50 overs and we left all of our games to the very end when we had the aborted tour that involved Pakistan and then everybody else realized that if they played us they could lose out on the champions trophy and they they declined to play us, and that's <laughs> left us out in the cold for the first time ever. Yeah. So, you know, it's a combination of things, but we must push forward to the next cycle of of uh, the World Cup, and we have to look towards the future. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, perhaps with a, a view to the future and the, and the, the cricketing experience, it's been announced the, uh, the Tri-Series, uh, all the games exclusively uh, are going to be uh, day-night matches. Uh, that'll add to the uh, spectator experience, won't it, Andrew? Yeah, certainly, and we have spent a lot of a lot of funding to get 
many of our grounds with, with the floodlights and it's something that we use very infrequently except at the CPL or maybe with some local event. So indeed having an international uh, tour that's featuring day-night matches is a good thing. I guess the only drawback is, you know, who are who are we really, you know, going to be catering to from a TV standpoint? Uh, it will be kind of late for the English. Uh, I'm not sure how it would be for for people in in your part of the world and in India. But from a from the utilization of of our resources and and the grounds, having day night will be a a big step up for us. Well, for, for, for the likes of me in Pakistan and uh, this part of the Asian subcontinent, if uh, you had a, a game that was uh, uh, ending at, let's say, 11 o'clock at night, there's a nine-hour difference, the, the, the game would be uh, being completed at 8 a.m. I, I, I probably would be tempted to, to get up at 6 a.m. to see the last 30 overs. Um, but I don't think with this call it's, it's something to attract the international audience. I think it's more about the, uh, the domestic audience. I mean, in the same way, they're talking about um, it still might not be too late to consider having a day-night test in the series against India. There's talk that uh, the St. Lucians are, are actually looking into this. Well, I don't think the experiment with Australia, I don't think the players really liked it a lot. And, and I think recently when there was talk of having two of them, I think they, they may be looking at cutting that back to one. Uh, the conditions during the day and, and at night are so different that for a test match, it, it really brings another another variable into the equation that can decide the outcome of a match. Uh, I myself am not really keen on day-night matches, even from the standpoint of trying to get more, more bottoms in the seats. <laughs> I think that test cricket should be played on an even... Uh, level at all times during the, the five days so we can get a result that's reflective of the strength of the teams and not have conditions play a part. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with you, but I think it is here to stay. I was interested to see that the uh, uh, the recent press release that West Indies Cricket Board were talking about potentially introducing some day-night cricket into the regional four-day season. I think it's, I think it's here to stay. Um, looking further ahead... Uh, it's been announced that Pakistan, their their home series against the West Indies, which is due to be in the United Arab Emirates, may move to, to Sri Lanka. Um, that we'll wait and see on. Uh, but back on the home front, we still don't have any CPL fixtures or India test schedule. This is a rhetorical question, Andrew, but what's going on? <laughs> well, as far as the, the Pakistan uh, series is concerned... I don't think playing in the Emirates versus Sri Lanka will be different from a from a pitch standpoint. It's just that Sri Lanka is a lot hotter. And we do have quite good spinners, Bishu, Narayan, Ben, uh, and others. So whichever venue they, they choose should be okay. As far as CPL is concerned, we know that the trying to avoid the 42 million uh, bill that we we had, we have to put these fixtures in with India coming to the West Indies, which coincidentally coincides with the CPL. So having some variability with those dates and which countries do the tests and the order of the tests, uh, that has thrown the, the CPL format and all the scheduling in, into disarray. I think the one thing that this whole process has shown is that the CPL organizers have not been able to grasp when we will have the fixtures for India, or maybe the, the board hasn't been communicating with them very well. And this delay has made it 
a rather painful exercise because from the standpoint of the, the cricketing public and fans, we, we always get the impression that the fixtures will be out in, in a week's time or less. And, and that has carried on for mm. about two months or so. But I'm sure they will have it done eventually. And I guess having some of the games in the U.S. has given them some wiggle room and has helped them to expand the, the brand with the possibility of seeing if the U.S. will be a feasible area to have CPL cricket and maybe help them with the television rights. So in the long run, everything will be done. I guess the, the World Cup, the fixtures came out rather late too. So that's on their side. They have a precedent to, to identify with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll wait and see, wait and see expectantly. Um, one thing within that, though, that you pointed out with the uh, the Indians and the, uh, I, I'm just a little nervous personally. The 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 news elsewhere in the world this week that uh, Shashank uh, Manohar has left the BCCI uh, to take over the chairmanship of the ICC. He was the one that waived the 42 million debt by the West Indies. I did read and was uh, quite worried to read in, in a lot of the Indian press that a lot of his colleagues on the BCCI didn't agree with the waiving of that debt. With his absence, is there any chance, Andrew, that this bill could re-emerge? Well, his stature in India is, is incredible. I mean, for a guy to resign all the polls he did just prior to taking up the the presidency again, it shows his confidence and and the esteem he's held in both in India and abroad. I don't think that any new leader of the BCCI would necessarily want to go against what he has already decided. And, and also he's in charge of the governing body. And, and the truth is we just don't have 42 million. So when you think about it, what, what would be the point? Yeah. So having these fixtures in, I think they'll get done. And I, I, I also see that it's being done to to thwart or CPL in some regards. It's, it's just being done at a very awkward time. And it, it helps to make sure that, that, as we already know, Indians don't take part in the CPL. And that really is is the bottom line. Yeah. Staying with fixtures, the CPL, uh, the St. Lucia Zooks have at least published theirs. And what was interesting in that was that they were dubbed for the first time uh, the St. Lucia Zooks. There's been some uh, confusion over what their... Uh, uh, their, their name was, they'd been the, the, the Windward Island Zooks, and when we had the draft, they were just the Zooks. So hopefully the, any issues that uh, concerning the financial backing have been resolved. Um, but we also know, Andrew, that uh, the West Indies women uh, will be playing host to, to England in uh, October, I believe. Yeah, well, this will give us a good chance to see you know, how appealing women's cricket will be because the Ind- England tours to the West Indies are the biggest tours and you know you get travelling fans usually when when England comes to the West Indies the, the challenge will be the, do you get travelling fans for women's cricket and really we're still trying to figure out you know what type of fan base women's cricket is gathering up for itself uh, the recent T20 Women's World Cup uh, the attendance was was quite poor, and generally for women's cricket, the attendance isn't what it what we'd like it to be. And I wonder what what's the missing link? What does women's cricket really need to to capture the fan base? Will women support it? Will will the guys and the regular cricket fans support it? Because technically, they play a good brand of cricket at a high standard, and it is exciting. And I'm hoping that having England here for the first time in such a 
such a big way might might make a difference, even though they may have uh, come here before, I'm sure. Mm. But it will be a real litmus test for women's cricket. Well, it'll be the first time that uh, the West Indies will be hosting them as world champions. Um, and uh, I would hope that uh, uh, the games will get some profile and, and be on TV and, and things like that. Uh, both of us very much agree that um, we'd like to see some real initiatives and improvements in the, the, the structure and just, just everything that goes towards women's cricket in the Caribbean. Yeah, definitely. But it's something to look forward to and you know tours are always a possibility for for tourism in, in our side of the world so uh, we, we wish them all the best yeah no absolutely another interesting story this week uh, andrew we finally had a resolution of the uh, odine brown story which hasn't got a great deal of uh, publicity in in the region it uh, until the result came out I'd, I'd been following it mainly in rjr news from Jamaica. Uh, he's been banned for 15 months for whereabouts failures in uh, random drugs tests, um, not providing information of where he would be on certain days, and uh, he's done that two, three times. He was uh, banned from cricket for, for, for 15 months. The interesting thing in this, I found not so much Odin Brown's case himself, but his own, what he has failed to do, is exactly the same as Andre Russell. Do you think we can expect Andre Russell to be incurring a similar ban of a similar length when he returns to Jamaica? Yeah, well, well, the whereabouts method has gone a lot easier on players. There was a time when you had to to give virtually a twenty-four hour, you know, timetable of where you'd be, uh, but now it's it's cut down to maybe about an hour of a day of of knowing exactly where you'd be, so that if you are chosen for for a test, you can be found by the doping officers. I think any top flight sportsman knows about this and they also understand that being unavailable for tests sequentially three times is is equivalent to an adverse analytical finding or what uh, most of us would call failing a drug test. Mm -hmm. So the sanction on Brown was inevitable and I believe unless Andrew Russell can provide some compelling reason why he couldn't have been where he should have been, which has to do with travel or some tournament he was on, which is a possibility. His uh, fate would be the same as Odin Brown. So uh, the also the delay in making that decision is is a bit intriguing to me because usually there's a committee in every anti-doping uh, region which sits down and looks at this, and also they may also take into some you know consideration what the the player's explanation of it. I'm sure he sent things to them, but I'm surprised they haven't made a ruling on it yet, and I don't know if they're waiting until he gets back to Jamaica to do it, but unless he has some really, really good reason, I would think a sanction would be coming down on him as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think in both cases um, it's uh, being conducted by the Jamaican authorities, and so they probably are just literally waiting for him to return after first the, the, the World Cup, and uh, now the IPL. Interestingly, in the Odin Brown case, his Defence said that um, <clears throat> the prosecutors, as it were, uh, were quite satisfied that uh, there had been nothing malicious in Brown's avoidance of these. It was really just um, negligence, silliness, uh, innocence, and he still got 15 months. 15 months for a guy sort of who's made a mistake, if you like. It's going to have to be something pretty compelling for Andre Russell to not get a, a similar sentence. Yeah, the way that the rules are, the water rules are written out, 
the thing is, once you come to a conclusion, the sanction follows, and and the the reasons why are, aren't as important as as the conclusion. And uh, in some cases, even though uh, sitting on these panels, you you do have some, you know, you do feel sorry for some of the individuals. You know, the the way the rules are written out, sometimes you just have to to make to pull that trigger and come up with the the conclusion as as they did with Brown, mm -hmm. but you know part of the educational process for the athletes is that they all are told about it and they know about it. So the onus is on the athletes, as with all anti-doping things. You know the athlete is responsible for everything that goes into their their bodies, and also this whereabouts uh, thing as well. They are supposed to really toe the line, and there's a lot of responsibility on athletes where drug testing is concerned. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you you know quite a lot about these things because you're very heavily involved in Barbados with the uh, National uh, Bodybuilding uh, Association, aren't you? Yes, I, I am. Yeah. I'm actually, the 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 person in charge of all the drug testing for the Central American and Caribbean region for bodybuilding, and I'm on the the local anti doping organization too yeah yeah well if we revisit this and uh and need to look more more closely at it i will know where to come to uh last few minutes now yeah. um, um andrew and uh, I, I do want to ask you about uh, tony cozier lots been said lots been written but i don't think there can ever be enough said about the man um that accomplished what he did yeah uh well tony will be greatly missed i had the the pleasure of seeing Tony on a professional basis uh, a few months ago and we, we had a re really good talk and you know Tony is someone that I respect and, and even love even though I, I just uh, I've known him for a short while but what he meant to cricket he's been the voice he's been the consummate writer he's been someone who's infused passion into the game for for all the West Indies and I know for for other places, he he's up there with the stalwarts like Richie Bernard and John Allen. He is easily our most uh, accomplished yeah. cricket commentator and writer. And I guess one of the he will be sorely missed. And one of the things is that there's no one on the horizon who who even comes close to to what Tony's been able to accomplish. Or that there's no successor in sight. You know, for a guy to do commentary on radio and TV on a whole day's play and then write about it in time for the for the you know publishers of the papers and, and online uh, cricket sites. You know, he's a man who's who's worked at an incredible rate for a very, very long time, even uh, close to his death. And it's a, you know, he's irreplaceable. He is, you know, like our Gary Sobers of, of cricket journalism. He, he's, mm -hmm. he was the best and he's, he was an all-rounder and he, he's a voice that we will, we will surely miss. And, you know, condolences again to his, his relatives and all, all the people that, that care about Tony. Uh, Tony and Reds, I think, uh, made an incredible team on, on radio and they painted a picture of cricket that made television uh, unnecessary back in the day and we, we understood and we visualized what what they said on radio, a very descriptive method and then you go to the minimalist method of, of TV uh, that trying to, hmm. to work with that dichotomy of, of you know the, the way that things were done he had an incredible understanding of cricket but the analysis, the statistics hmm. he, he's the only one in our region who 
uses uh, statistics in a in a way to to bring out points and arguments, unlike some individuals who just use statistics <laughs> in a kind of a story-like way that that doesn't really bring to life the, the stats. And he had an understanding. He had a story for everything because he he lived it. He saw it. He didn't learn his stats from from a book or from the internet. He he. He was there and he remembered what happened and he, he gained things as he went on. But one thing that was missing that I have missed since he was off radio is when there was a, a tour on, a series, he always gave some sort of description of key players and what they did and what their stats were. Mm-hmm. And it allowed the listener to learn more about cricket and to to kind of formulate kind of stats and information on their own. But now you listen to a game, uh, so if you don't know the players or do your own homework, you are you're kind of lost. And we I remember as a as a boy learned about Ian Redpath and yeah. and Stackpole and everybody else. I mean Tony was was incredible. Yeah, yeah. No he's we could talk about him for, for, for a long time, <laughs> for an hour. <laughs> yeah, his, his, his death leaves an enormous vacuum in uh, Caribbean cricket coverage. And as you say, he was an all-rounder, he was a historian, he was a statistician, an analyst, commentator, broadcaster. He could do it all uh, with expertise. Greatly missed. Yes, yes, definitely. Andrew, I want to thank you for, uh, for, for, for joining me on this uh, edition of the, the Willow in the Windies. Uh, but I do want to... Um, Having had that sad note, uh, I do want to uh, end on an upbeat note uh, just to flag up that uh, I, I read in the paper only yesterday that there in Barbados, a young 15-year-old of the name Naeem Young scored 299 for St Michael's School against Dayton Griffith School. One for the future. Yeah, that's, that's part of concentration for you. But over the years, we've had so many youth cricketers who have done well and and, you know, really had outstanding feats over the years and and the thing is that just a, a small percentage of them have gone on to, to play at the highest level. I think we need to nurture and encourage all these youngsters with talent and surround them with the type of team that can make them reach their full potential. There's no doubt that the potential exists in the Caribbean. Mm. I think it's how we manage the potential that's been weakness over the last 20 years and also our decision making and, and forthrightness at seeing what the future holds but I'm, I'm very pleased for, for Master Young and I hope that he'll continue to, to achieve Yeah, no, absolutely that is the challenge for the Barbados Cricket Association, other regional boards, the West Indies Cricket Board the region in general um, Thank you Andrew, I hope you can do this again at the same time next week Okay, thank you for inviting me, David, and, and stay safe. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I, happy. <laughs> I, I, I will indeed here in Islamabad. All right. This has been uh, The Willow in the Windies, the Caribbean cricket podcast with Andrew Ford and me, David Orm, and we both hope you can join us again next time. Goodbye.